Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word today and, and see what you would have us to see from this. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John had said unto him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. There, whereupon he promised to, with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And she, being before instructed of her mother, asked, Give me here John the Baptist's head in a, on a charger. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them that sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given to her. And he sent to beheaded John in the prison, and his head was brought on a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So here we see Herod the Tetrarch. He is the king over Israel at this time. He is appointed king. He has been appointed king by Rome. He is not Jewish. He, he was married to a Jewish woman at one point, so he has no right to the throne as far as the Jews are concerned. They hate Herod with a great passion and Herod is a architect and a builder things that he built are still in existence in in their ruins ruined form all over Israel and the middle Middle East and part of what he did is if you've ever heard of Herod's temple he took the second temple and he made it better apparently at least in his mind he was making it better bigger more more beautiful he was somebody who was very good at designing and building programs even though it cost lots of money to do them and he was trying to buy their favor even though he didn't belong to, as king because the Jews kept looking at him and said you're not a son of David you don't belong on the throne over Israel so he never was able to get them to be happy with him but he is the one that's over Jerusalem in that area as their appointed leader by Rome and he had one point had arrested John the Baptist and now he's hearing about Jesus doing all these miracles and you know it's kind of interesting how he thinks you know his mind goes immediately it's John the Baptist uh, I think he felt a lot of guilt over, you know it's obvious that he felt guilt over killing John because here is Jesus doing all these miracles and it's like oh he's back all right and that kind of makes sense because the Romans and the Greeks all had this kind of mentality of the gods could bring you back to life and that was something that was very much part of their of their statements and we see that in the stories of Hercules and all the mythologies where people are brought back from the dead because some person goes and defeats the god of the dead and brings them back to life so in Herod's mind he's saying oh my tormentor is back and there's a there's a fear and it's kind of interesting that he has this fear because he doesn't he is not somebody that is known for his fear uh, in many ways, but in some ways he is. He killed almost all of his sons because he was afraid that they were going to take over his kingship. He, as, when they started showing any signs of being strong, he would kill them. So he had great fear, and here's John the Baptist. He's afraid of John the Baptist. He's afraid of the people. He's a man who lived in a lot of fear, even though he was also very uh, boisterous and, and outgoing as well. 
undercurrent of fear. And it says the reason he feared him was Pharaoh had arrested him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. And as we read this, he says, for John said to them, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod had his brother Philip killed and he took Herodias to be his wife. And John the Baptist told him that it was wrong. And didn't seem to bother Herod as much as it did Herodias. Because Herodias is now queen and it's like, how dare this man speak against us? You know, uh, I think Herod had so many people speaking against him. It was like, I don't care. Another, another person who's saying something's wrong, I don't, it's no big deal to me. But Herodias is, gets upset. I kind of think back to uh, Jezebel as she gets upset every time Eli, uh, Elisha speaks against the king and, what, and, their, and the prophets and the, and the idol, idol worship, she gets upset with him. And Elisha's more afraid of Jezebel than he is the king because Jezebel had that anger and she would do things in the, king, in the king's name. And so he feared her more. And we see the same thing with Herodias. Herodias is this person who is very upset. God has spoken against her lifestyle through John the Baptist, and she is out to get John out to get him. And we see this, that John's very famous, and you remember when John's preaching, all the people are going out to the water, out to be baptized by him. They keep going out to where he's at. And he speaks very boldly. You know, there's one place where we're told, you know, he says, who warned you, you whitewashed sepulchers, you know, you vipers to, to come out here to, for repentance. You know, he was not nice to the, to the self-righteous. And he was not nice to Herodias when he was spoke, speaking out. And, and she took it very personally. And then it says in verse 6, But Herod's birthday was kept. The daughter of Herodias danced before him, and it pleased Herod. We know that Herodias' daughter through history is named Salome. Now, we've got to think about this. A royal princess does not dance in front of all these men in a drunken party, which is what would have been going on in this birthday party. You know, for her to dance in the first place makes very little sense because that's not something. We think back to in the book of Esther when Vashti was called by uh, Artaxerxes to come and dance, you know, stand before her, his drunken friends. She said, no, I'm not. I'm a princess. I'm not going to degrade myself in that way. And it's still true to this day that a woman in the Arab cultures does not appear with any kind of way that's immodest. And yet we see this princess. She was a princess. You know, she, Philip was part of that group, so it's still royalty. Even if she's not a princess, she's still royalty. Was Philip was Alexander's father? No, he was Herod's brother. And so, but anyway, she's in a place where she's not, you know, it's not, it's well beneath her dignity to be dancing in, in front of these men. And it's not even just in front of, because it says in the, it brings out in the uh, Greek here that she was dancing right in the middle of these men. You know, it's not, she was not on a stage. She was right out where they were at. And you've got to remember, this was his birthday party, and it is a drunken brawl, probably, type deal. It's not 
uh, it is not a place where this refined person should be. So we see the level of hatred that Herodias has for this, for John, that she's planning this. She knows, she knows Herod's weakness. And you know, one of his weaknesses was obviously pretty girls. <laughs> and you know, he, she dances before him and it says, it pleased Herod. And this pleased literally means to excite. You know, it, he was excited by what he saw. Now, what he saw, we don't know. We know that she danced, whether it was, you know, the strip dance of, the, of the, that type of nature or just barely clad, which would not be uncommon. We don't know. But it says he was excited by what he saw. And it's kind of a sick thing because this is his niece <laughs> that he's being excited by. And we see how far down things have gotten in this, in this environment, you know, that he's looking with this lust at his niece, basically, and being excited by her. And Herodias is using her daughter in this way is even worse. And it really goes to show what happens when, the sin, when you're so deep in sin that you will do anything to get what you want. And we see this all the time, well, how people that are into... The, the world of sin, drugs, theft, whatever it might be, you know, drugs will sell anything and everything they have and anyone in their family to get their next fix. The thieves will steal from anybody. A friend, you know, they go to a friend's house and see stuff they want, they'll go steal from their friend. You know, there's no honor, no, no righteousness at all involved in this. You know, they, they see what they want and they will do what it takes to get it. And that's a sad place, but we, we see it. We even see it in our day, how far down we've gone. And this is Herodias using her daughter. And it says that he made a promise and an oath to give her whatever she asked. Now, I'm sure that what he probably was thinking, oh, she's going to ask for some money, you know, a trip, you know. Uh, I don't think he ever dreamed that she would ask for the head of John the Baptist because there's no reason for her to want it. And, you know, and we can see this, you know, we see it all the time, you know, uh, in Daniel, what was he, what was he told by, by uh, Belshazzar, you know, he goes, I will give you whatever you want up to a third of the kingdom. All right. And this kind of what, you know, Herod's probably thinking, oh, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. It's not, you know, <laughs> I'll still be in charge and you can have what, you know, ask what you want. And it's a pretty dangerous thing. If you tell anybody, ask what you want, you're in a pretty dangerous place because you don't know what they're going to ask for. And he never expected this to be what it was that she would ask. And it says, she, being instructed of her mother, said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a charger. And this, is, this story is also told in Mark 6 and, and Luke 3, which... In both of those cases, they bring out the fact that Salome left the presence of Herod, went to her mom, and asked, you know, he's offered me what I want. What, you know, what should I ask for? And you can just see her, you know, kind of rubbing her hands together. Okay, we got him now. Now, you tell him you want the head of John the Baptist. And, you know, we see the evilness of all of this. The evilness of the king of that land and his queen. Okay, he's already in a adulterous affair with her, you know, an incestuous affair, if you want to say. Uh, for, the, for the Jews, his relationship with his brother's wife is a terrible thing because we read in, in, in the uh, commandments that 
that this is not allowed. You're not to have any close relationship, you know, sexual relationship with any close aunt, uncles, uh, sisters, brothers, half-brothers, half-sisters. It doesn't matter. Anything that is a close relationship is against the rules. And here he is with this person. And so he's neither going to be accepted by the Jews because he's a sinner. He's a great sinner in their eyes. And he's not a son of David. So he's got everything going against him. And now he's going to kill John the Baptist, who they consider a prophet, and, they like, and he's well-respected. So he's digging a deeper hole for himself. Um, and then we see that when she asked for it in verse 9, it says the king was sorry. He was sorry that he, you know, what he gave her. And we see, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them that sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given to her. Yeah. This sorrow was one he, he didn't want to kill John. He was afraid to kill John. He was afraid there would be a battle. And in the last thing any Roman leader needed in Israel was to upset the Jewish people and have an uprising. Because they kept revolting every time they turned around. We're just, we're just a couple of decades from the Macca, Maccabean revolt that really almost took, gave them their freedom. And there's other revolts. There's all these people that we would call them terrorists. They would call themselves freedom fighters. They were trying to get out from under Rome's rule. And they would use terms like, I'm the Messiah, follow me. Which is why when Jesus came along claiming to be the Messiah, that he had a following that said, okay, let's see what you can do. You seem to have miracles. You can, you can heal people. You can do a lot of things. You, you seem to have the power to make, get us out from under Roman, Roman uh, rule. And this is why when he died on that cross, even though he told the disciples he was going to die on the cross, it shocked them because we've talked about this. They always were thinking, we're following the Messiah. We're going to be... We're going to be the dukes and the barons and whatever other title you might want to use. We're going to be the governors of the various lands because we're his number one followers. When he goes to war and he wins this battle, we're going to be the top dogs. So their, um, their conceptions of things were uh, misplaced? Very much so. They, they, they did not understand there was going to be a time period between the time he came and he died on the cross and then comes back to, to rule the world on the millennial kingdom. So even their reasoning, I guess. They never, well, they never heard what he was saying. It, what, when he said, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect in three days, all they heard is, this doesn't make any sense to me, I'm ignoring it. Because he's the Messiah, he's going to start a kingdom. This dying stuff, we don't understand this dying stuff. It's not part of, the, it's not part of our eschatology, our end times scenario. He's supposed to come. He's supposed to get, make Israel the center of the, of the planet and the government is supposed to run from Jerusalem with the Messiah at the head of the, government, of the one world government over everybody. That was their mindset. And if you've ever been there, if you've ever been someplace where you take a doctrine and you so thoroughly believe that doctrine and somebody gives you all the verses that, that contradict that doctrine, You'll ignore it completely because you fully believe what you believe. The disciples were doing just that. Uh, Jesus said, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to resurrect. Does not compute, ignore. <laughs> okay? And so they ignored. Now, they remembered, they heard it, but they didn't, it didn't make sense. So when Jesus hung on that cross, they're hiding in fear of their lives because they backed the wrong horse as far as they're concerned. 
All right? Before he resurrected and the Holy Spirit came in, as far as they're concerned, they backed the wrong Messiah, and there's going to be soldiers at their door very soon arresting them, just as they had done all the other false messiahs that had come along. They'd gone in, arrested them, all their followers, and executed them. So they're fully expecting for three days to be arrested and executed because they did not hear, it did not compute in their mind that he was coming, that he did just what he said he was going to do. It made no sense to them. And when he was resurrected, and you know, we even see then that there's this hesitancy to believe, you know, what are, what are we seeing? How, who is this? You know, Thomas going, well, I, I wasn't here. I don't believe that you saw him. I don't know what you guys were smoking while you were, you know, last night, but uh, I don't believe unless I see. You know, and we laugh at that, but that's really kind of what he was saying. You know, basically, I don't know what you guys were drinking or smoking or, or using last night, but I watched him die, and, and you're telling me you saw him. And we would have probably done the same thing ourselves as Thomas if we weren't in the upper room at that time. But we see here that he was sorry. The king, Herod was sorry, and he kept his, his promise to her. But there's this little tiny bit. It wasn't just his promise that he was keeping. He kept it because of those that heard him say the promise. If he hadn't made a public promise to her, I don't believe that he would have kept it. But he couldn't lose face with his friends at this point. He promised that he would give her whatever she asked, and he's going to do it. And how many times have we seen people, we see it on movies all the time, where somebody makes a promise in front of other people, and they're just... They've got to fulfill it, otherwise they lose face. They're, they're, they're going to be looked bad if they don't fulfill, even if it's totally ridiculous what they do. They made a promise in front of people. They've got to fulfill that promise and at least look like they're a man, of their, man or woman of their word. And it says that because of them, he commanded the head to be given to her. And he sent and he beheaded John the Baptist. And his head was brought in on a charger, and it was given to the damsel, and she gave it to her mother. Yeah. You know, you got to think about this. You know, even from her point of view, it's it kind of strange to me. Is like, Mom, what should I ask for? You know, ask for John the Baptist's head. Well, why, you, know, you can picture the question, well, why do I want John the Baptist's head? You know, I've got a chance to really get something out of this, and you wanted me to just get a head on a platter. Yeah. It's her mother back, backing up everything on this. I believe her mother put her into the, in, you know, uh, encouraged Herod to call her or put her in front of Herod in the first place. Doesn't say that clearly, but she's the one behind the scenes doing this. Uh, so I believe it's completely her, her doing it because it does not make sense that Salome would go on her own initiative to go dance in front of a bunch of drunken you know, leaders of, uh, at this point in time. It makes no sense. Uh, her position would say, don't do it. This was somebody you called that was the slave girl and put, it, you know, put her on display. You didn't do this to, the, to the, royal, you know, the royal house. You didn't do this to people of, of position. It would not be something that was done. This is, again, going back to all the way back to Vashti in front of, you know, when she was dethroned as the queen because she would not appear in a, in a party in front of her husband's friends after three days of drunkenness uh, to, be, to be observed. You know? And there's questions on what exactly he was asking her to do, but nonetheless, she goes, I'm a, 
I'm a queen, and beyond that, I'm a princess, even if you don't want to take the fact that I'm a queen. She grew up as a princess and was not going to do this. It does not make sense that Salome was just going to say, well, yeah, yeah, just put me on display. You know, I, I'm, I'm part of the royal, part, you know, royal family, you know, and just go ahead and put me on display. You know, it, it, it does not make sense that she did this on her own initiative. Um, and then after he was killed, John's disciples came, they took his body, and they buried it. Yeah, this was a pretty bold move in and of itself. You know, you just killed our, our leader, and we're going to come, come in. Yeah, they did not have the protection of John's popularity anymore, and they yet went up and said, I want, we want his body, we're going to bury it. And you think about how loyal his disciples were to him. And he always said that I'm not, I'm not the Messiah, I'm just the one that announces his coming. And they went up and they got the body. And then it says, and they went and told Jesus. They went and told Jesus. They were there when John looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the world. Several of his disciples left him at that time to follow Jesus. And now the rest of them are going, we're going to, go, we're going to see this Jesus guy and see what he's going to say. Now, again, we're coming back to the idea, if Jesus is the Messiah, then he's going to be really upset that his the one who announced him is dead, and we're going to see him rise up. This is, this is their expectation. We're going to see him rise up and build an army and get rid of this guy who just killed our leader. And again, this is, you know, we have trouble thinking of Jesus in those terms, but this is how the people in his day were thinking about him. Here's the Messiah. He's going to get rid of Rome. And this is why the Jews, even to this day, consider Jesus a non-Messiah because he did not become the, the ruler of Israel. And from their mindset, he failed. They don't see him as a resurrected, coming back again individual. They say he's a failed Messiah. He died. And that's how they look at him. And as a prophet, some of them, some of them don't even look at him that much. Yeah, some of them don't even look at him that much. Yeah. He's at best a prophet and at worst a fa total failure because he did not establish the kingdom of Israel in the forever kingdom that they're waiting for. And the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah to come and make them the center of all the world government to rule the world from Israel, which is exactly what Jesus will do when he returns at the end of the tribulation period, and he will, for a thousand years, he's going to rule from Jerusalem, and even into the new kingdom, new heaven and earth, when, because the new heaven and earth, the very first thing we'll see is the new Jerusalem coming down upon the world, and he will rule the world from the new Jerusalem. So we see the same picture. Uh, and so we see this individual. All right, coming into verse 13. And when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by a ship into a desert, desert place apart. And when the people heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. All right, so Jesus goes off to be alone. You know, this is, this is, a, sad, this is a sad point in, in his life, and he's got to go to the Father and get, you know, he understands, but he's got to go to the Father. And it kind of shows how much he loved John even on this. You know, it's another, another death, another death that's occurred of somebody that's been a leader. 
And we see the Jews have done this over and over and over again to their prophets. They put them to death. You know, the story of the history tells us that Isaiah was sawn in half because the people didn't like his message. And he's a revered one who wrote a large book. Uh, Jeremiah, every time Jeremiah spoke, he was thrown into a pit or a dungeon or a, or a cistern or, or locked up. Yeah. How would you like those kind of jobs? You know, okay, God, uh, God uh, I'm preaching your word, and every time I preach, they throw me into a dungeon. Yeah. That'd be a pretty hard job to, to do that kind of work. You know, be Hosea and have to go marry a prostitute so you can have, a, have an example of a practical example. See, I bought them back. This is just like God buying you back over and over again. You know, God was pretty interesting with the way he dealt with these prophets in those days. And Jesus goes off to be alone and the people follow him. The people follow him and they follow him on foot. So it took them a while. So he did have some quiet time because the ship travels a lot faster than people would on foot. And they finally found him and he looked at him and it was a great multitude, he said, and he had compassion. And I love this picture of Jesus. He was always soft-hearted to those that were really looking for God. Now he was very harsh on the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and the self-righteous, the hypocrites. He was very harsh on them. He was very harsh on the prophets and the, uh, the, the priests and the Levites in the, in the temple when he cleansed the temple because of their hypocrisies. But when it came to the people that were really seeking after God, he was very soft and tender with them. And it says, and he healed their sick. And this is a statement we have when Jesus comes to people. He heals the sick. And he touches them. And he re, re, uh, tries to minister to each one of them as they come along. And the only place, if you remember, was a couple weeks ago. We said that he could not do miracles in Nazareth. Why? Because the people did not believe that he was who he, who he said he was. So there was no power, no strength in that, in that environment. Verse 13, 15. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and now is the time, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. And Jesus said unto them, they need not depart, give them to eat. And they said unto them, we have here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and, and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that filled 12 baskets. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men. So Jesus is ministering during this day. It gets to be evening time. The people are hungry, and the disciples, their answer to them being hungry is, uh, Jesus, go tell them to go, tell them to get out of here. Go, go find some food. You know, this is, this is the middle of the desert. There's no food for here. You go tell them to scatter amongst the villages. And, you know, this is kind of interesting that Jesus said, you know, uh, we, they don't need to go. You're going you're gonna to feed them. Now, can you picture... Jesus saying this, you're the disciple and you're going, uh, Jesus, there's a huge amount of people here. We don't have a grocery store behind us to, uh, you know, to uh, feed these people. Matter of fact, it was going to be tough even in the villages to go feed 5,000 people all of a sudden hidden in these small villages. And yet Jesus is telling the disciples, uh, we're going to go ahead and feed them. You feed them. <laughs> I love the way it is. Give them, you give them food. <laughs> and can you picture how that would go over? 
uh, looking at each other and like, uh, where are we finding this much food? And you think about this, 5,000 people. To feed 5,000 people is not a small task. Uh, not a small task at all. You go to a commissary or a group. Well, yeah, we're going to get there. Yeah, because it was 5,000 men. And if even half of them are married with their wives with them, you're, we're talking about 750 and probably a bunch of kids along with that. So probably looking at about 10,000 people to be fed. So you're right, 10,000. You know, now we're talking about trying to feed 10,000 people in the middle of the desert without a huge caravan of, of wagons behind you with food. And the disciples probably looked at Jesus and go, are you crazy? Uh, are you really, you're really saying that we're going to feed these people? You know, our ship, our little ship doesn't even hold enough food to, to feed 10,000 people. If you've ever fed large groups of people, you know it takes a lot of food to feed even a couple hundred people takes a large amount of food. When you're working in a restaurant and you're, and you're serving you know, uh, six or seven hundred meals in a day, you have a whole refrigerator and stocks and pantries behind you and they're replaced frequently. So here they are and Jesus says, you're going to feed them and their answer was, uh, Jesus, we have five loaves of bread, and these aren't what we think of loaves. These are more like buns. We've got five buns and, and uh, two fish. Now, even though they were huge fish, which they probably weren't, then you would say, how do we feed 5,000, 10,000 people with you know, five, five rolls, or even if we think loaves of bread, uh, and, and two fish? And Jesus says, Bring them to me. Bring them to me. The power that Jesus exhibits and as he feeds the people and he gave this blessing and he says, give it, give it to them. Now, how, you're, you're the disciples. You've, you've, been, you've been given these small pieces of bread and, bread and fish and you start passing it out. After a while, you start realizing, uh, I still have part of this bread in my hand and part of this fish. I've just, I've, just, I've just served 300 people. And you start passing out more. And you look at your hands and go, there's still stuff in my hands. There's still food. And you pass out more. Can you picture the miracle on this that's going on? Now, I'm absolutely sure that in my lifetime, I've seen this miracle on more than one occasion at church gatherings and stuff where there's, just, there's not enough food for everybody who's there and yet everybody gets filled. I've seen it on more, I've seen, I believe I've seen it here in our, some of our potlucks, where everybody gets fed. Maybe just enough food to feed everybody, but everybody has their food and they're full. Because there's sometimes when I've gone up there, I'm going, there's not enough food for everybody who's here, and yet everybody ends up being filled. I've seen it in different activities that came, where groups came to our my house when I was younger and we would have one, one pot of rice and one pot of bean, of uh, gumbo or something and 20 people show up. And yet, by the time you got done, there was still food in the bottom of both pots and everybody was full. This is a miracle that happens frequently when, when God's involved. And we see it over and over again. And we see it in multiple occasions just in the Gospels. 
In this particular case, 5,000 men are fed. And we see that they gather up. Not only do they feed five, uh, the five, 10,000 people, however many people beyond the 5,000, they end up with 12 baskets of leftovers. Yeah, 12 baskets of leftovers from a very small amount to start with. If you had torn up the starting, you wouldn't even have filled up one basket. And they end up with all this leftovers. Because you go back to the widow of who was, was needing oil and needed money for her, for her family. And, then, and the, uh, Elijah or Elisha, I can't remember which one, told her to get as many pots as you possibly can and just keep pouring the oil. And they got all the pots they can. And then they didn't run out of oil from one pitcher of oil until everything that she had been able to borrow was filled. Okay, If she had been able to borrow more pots, more pots would have been filled. What? And then he said, go and sell. No, it was just a miracle from God. And this is, this is what the faith world says. If you just reach out, you, you give the seed, you, you give God this, you're, you are promised that he's promised to give you back. And that's not a good place to be. Here God said, I'm going to, we're going to feed them. Jesus said, we're going to feed them, and they were fed. The widow with the, with the oil pot, was, the prophet told her, you're going, to, you're going to fill all the pots you can, go sell everything, and, and buy your profits. The other widow, the widow, the widow, actually the widow of Zarephath, this other was a widow, you know, was told by the prophet, you know, she goes, I've got enough oil and, and flour to make a small cake for me and my son. We're going to eat it, and we're going to die. And he says, okay, make me one first. In her case, it was faith, because she could have said, you're, you're absolutely nuts. I don't have enough for us, and you want me to use part of that for you. But because she honored his, she didn't run out of food until the, until the famine broke. God has done this over and over again in the past. He goes, you know, it is not a problem for God to make food from nothing. He made the whole world from nothing. It is not a problem for him to have a spoon taken out and have a spoon, a spoon of food left. It's not a problem at all for him. And he doesn't make a big deal out of it in most cases. He just says, do it. Do it. You know, and the idea for us is there are those blessings when we are just obedient to God to, to obey. And I've seen it many times with tithes and offerings where we just give God. Now, are we to give him so that we get back? No, if that's our motive, we're not going to be blessed with the return of it. But if we're giving to him because he says to give and we're just honoring him, God does some miraculous things with that. When we give him his, the, the 10% he asks for, that 90% seems to go a lot further. At least in my experience, it's always gone further than the 100%. I get better deals. Uh, I have all kinds of things that happen and, and that didn't seem to be happening or shouldn't happen. And all of a sudden, you look at it and say, okay, I'm at the end of the month. I still have a couple pennies in the bank. Where it used to be, if I didn't give God my tithe, it's like, okay, I got, I'm not even at the end of the month and there's no money in the bank. Nothing to pay any bills. And you get to, you know, you honor him and there's that little extra at the end. Not usually a great amount, but there's that little extra. All the bills are paid and there's just a little bit still left. And this is the way God works. You know, we're not doing it so that we can get a blessing necessarily. We're doing it in honor of him. And then he blesses in that process. When we honor him, when we spend time in the word, he blesses us with what we need for that day to get through that day by what we read. When we honor him with our physical possessions, he says, okay, thank you, we're going to help you 
get by. And I'm, I'm an advocate of the fact that if you don't tithe to God, he's going to take his tithe. One way or the other, he's going to get his tithe. You may have three flat tires when you come out one morning because you didn't tithe, you know, it's, which costs you more than your tithe. You can have your car's engine blow up. I mean, there's all kinds of things that God says, uh, yeah, uh, you didn't want to give me my money, I'll, I'll take it for you. I'm, I'm, I totally believe that that's what happens when we don't honor him. And the Christians will tell you, and, they, and I'm, I will agree with it, in the New Testament, it doesn't tell us to tithe. But Paul says, give, God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus took all the laws in the Old Testament and intensified them. So when I meet somebody who says, well, I don't need, believe I need to tithe, my question is, so how much more than the tithe are you giving? Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. God, he says, if you're angry with a brother without reason, you've committed murder in your heart. So if I'm saying I don't have to tithe, okay, fine. How much greater than the tithe am I looking at? But again, if you're doing it just because you feel you have to, don't give the tithe because it's not what he wants. He wants cheerful obedience to him, not grudging obedience. Being a hypocrite in your obedience is not what he's looking for. He wants cheerful, obedient people that see him working. And I can tell you, I've seen it over and over, and I keep hearing testimonies from all kinds of people that they say, I've started giving God the tithe, and, and I'm getting blessed. I have this. I have that. And those who say, well, I just can't afford to tithe, well, I say you can't afford not to tithe. And this has been true for me all my life, is that we want to tithe our whatever we had. When I went from making $50,000 a, a year down to $18,000 a year, we still tithed. It wasn't near as big, <laughs> but we still tithed. Even though my budget was based on a lot larger number, and God always came through to pay the bills. And because, yes, I did all my things. I chopped the bills down. I cut, I cut as much out of the budget as possible. But, you know, you can only cut so much when your budget is set for a lot higher number. And God always came through. Now, I had to work hard, and I've told you all, I had to work hard many times. God would provide all kinds of extra jobs for me to do. But it was always there. And God said, here. And here he's telling his disciples, this, I'm going to show you the miraculous work of the Father. He can create the universe. Creating food is no big deal to him. Not a big, you know, you got to, matter of fact, it's probably easier to create food than the whole universe. Uh, all he had to do is every time they took a piece, replace it. And then, they, then he overabundantly replaced it by filling 12 baskets of food. Each disciple had a basket of food that they could take. So we see this, uh, this great blessing that he did. Verse 22, and straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up unto the mountain to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. We just want to look at this. This has been a, this has been a pretty big day for Jesus. Sometime earlier that day, he got the news that John the Baptist was killed. They take a ship and cross over the, over the water to a desert place. They're there for several hours probably before the people finally come along because it says they came along on foot. He spends the day healing the sick. Coming into the evening, he feeds the multitude of people. Then he sends the disciples away on the ship. And he sends the people away. And then he goes to a quiet place to pray. 
This is something that we see Jesus doing frequently. He goes to a quiet place by himself to pray to the Father. We need to follow that kind of example. Sometimes we just need a quiet place to just come before God and pray. Outside of the noise, outside of the chaos. And you know, for our generation, sometimes that's a pretty hard thing to do is to go to a quiet place. I remember when I was growing up, my stepmother used to hate it because when I would do my homework, I turned the radio on. And she just could not fathom how you, I could study and have the radio going on. But I was the type of person that if I had the radio off, I was more distracted by the quiet than I was having the radio on. Because when it was quiet, I was listening like, what was that noise? What was that noise? What's going on? I was very distracted. And I still to this day have hard time going into a quiet place, even before God, in quietness. And Jesus sought that out. And there's great benefit in doing it. There's great benefit in getting into a quiet place without distractions before, before God. And Jesus did this, and he went up to the mountain, and he prayed, and he, after he sent him away. And it says, when the evening was come, and the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed by waves, and the wind was contrary. Now, Jesus told them, you're going to the other side, and, and the storm came up. And the picture in Hebrew, excuse me, Greek of this storm is it was a tempest. It was a huge storm. The disciples are, you know, most of them were fishermen, so they knew that they were in trouble. This was not something they wanted to be out of, even though they were sailors. They're like, uh, we shouldn't be out here. This is, this is a bad storm. And it says that in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. <laughs> Fourth watch of the morning of the night is the, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's right before dawn. So these disciples had been out probably 5, 6 o'clock. They were sent out away from Jesus as he just dismissed the crowd, maybe even a little earlier. They'd been on the water for many hours <laughs> trying to get to the other side, fighting a storm. And I don't know how many people have been on boats, but you know, it doesn't take much waves on a boat <laughs> to, to bounce you around, especially a smaller boat. If you've ever been on a big cruise on a big ship, it, you know, they don't feel the waves quite as much. But even some of those, if you get a good storm, you feel the waves and the pitch and the roll of the, of the vessel. And the smaller your vessel is, the more you feel those waves. And these guys are fighting to stay alive in their mind. And they look up and they see somebody walking on the water. <laughs> yeah. And you know, picture, picture how you would feel if you were still you're on the boat and all of a sudden you see somebody walking on the water. Yeah. Uh, it would be something that was very interesting because it says the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were troubled. Literally, they were agitated. They were scared to death. You know, what is walking on the water? You know, people don't walk on the water, and yet they're seeing a person walk on the water. And we would probably be the same thing. If you were out and, you know, even if you were on a non-rough piece of water and you saw somebody walking across the water to you, it would freak you out. And this is what it basically was. They were freaked out. And they said, it is a spirit or a ghost, a specter. And they were afraid. 
And you know what? We probably would pretty much think the same thing because you cannot walk on water in the, in the flesh. Huh? He did it digitally. Oh, if we saw it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, if we saw it in film, we'd think it was digitally remastered, you know. Uh, even if we saw it in reality, we might think it was some kind of, some kind of, uh, you know, hologram or some form of, you know. But at the same time, we would be wondering, how in the middle of a storm is all of this happening? How, how can this be happening? And it would bother us, even in our day and age, it would bother us to see someone walking across the water or something walking across the water that we don't know what it is. And it says that Jesus spoke to them and said, be of good cheer or good courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Okay. They've been toiling along. Now, in another one of the Gospels, it said, and he made like he was going to walk past them. <laughs> okay. They're struggling, trying to keep the boat afloat, and he's just walking, and it's, and, and it's like he's going to walk past them. And they're probably afraid. You know, hope. But number one, what is this crossing you know, our, our path? And who is this that's walking by? And then they recognize Jesus and say, it's me. It's me. This is just one of those pictures of how powerful Jesus is and how little the disciples really understood even how powerful Jesus is. And, you know, we do the same thing. We sometimes do not recognize the power of God in our life. How, how often do we have, make a statement of, well, I've tried everything else. Maybe I should pray instead of being the first thing that we do. God, uh, I, can, I can take care of these problems. Uh, if and when I need you, I'll come and talk to you. Post taught not to ask for anything. <laughs> to fix this myself. A lot of Christians have been taught. A lot of Christians have been taught, don't ask God for the little things of life. But here we're seeing Jesus. He fed the 5,000. He healed the sick. You know, he's always there ready to help in the little things of life. We see, and we've talked about so many of these things. He, he fed the widow, the widow and her son with the, the flour and the, and the oil for, until the, the famine hit. He prepared, he prepared all these things. He gave manna to the, in the wilderness to over three million Israelites in the wilderness and gave them water to drink. Now, we're talking about 10,000 people here being fed. You know, in the middle of the wilderness, he's feeding three million people every day and giving them water. Can you imagine how much water it would take to, to water three million people every day, even for one day, and how much food it would take to feed that many people? You know, our cities get trucks and trains and everything every day to try to maintain millions of people. And God's going, I'm, here you go, it's, it's on the ground every morning for you. You're talking about when they were going through, through the, the wilderness, desert. through the wilderness. Yeah. Every day being fed that much, that much food. Here he's only feeding 10,000 people. Piece of cake compared to millions. <laughs> uh, and we see that he's walking by. And he says, be of good cheer. Be of good courage. It is I. You know, be courageous. You know, God uses that term a lot in the scriptures. Be courageous. Stand up for him. So many of us as Christians are pretty wimpy most of the time. We won't stand up. We won't share God with people because we're afraid somebody might make fun of us. We won't stand up for God and, and say, God, I'm going to, to speak for you. We won't let people know we're a Christian half the time. 
And God keeps saying, be courageous. It, we're at the end of Deuteronomy on, on Wednesday night, and over and over again, he's telling Joshua, be courageous, be courageous, be courageous, be courageous. And even when we get to the book of Joshua, he's going to keep telling them, be courageous. Be strong, be brave, be one who stands up. We're going to see the disciples gain all kinds of courage when Jesus comes back from the dead. From being totally fearful of being arrested and looking forward to being killed because of, of Jesus' death, to being very courageous and bold and going out and speaking his name to everybody they come across because they've seen the power of Jesus being resurrected. We need to really get a picture of how powerful God is in our life and the miracles that he does in our life. Now, it's amazing when I look around at my life and see this is what God's done, this is what God's done, this is what God's done. You know, this is the benefit, this is the blessing he gave me. Not that I'm doing things for the blessing, but, I, but he, he rewards his followers. He does. Doesn't mean we're going to get rich and famous by these rewards, but he gives us everything we need and then some in most cases. He fed the 10,000 people here and he goes, okay, here's your leftovers. You each get a basket of fish and bread to take with you. You know, we got 12 baskets, guys. You get to each have one. He gives back abundantly above what we expect from him. He is not looking to keep us in poverty as long as we recognize that it's him who's the benefactor. Now, if we don't recognize who he's, that it's him, we won't have much because if we think it's us, he's not going to give us those great blessings. And we've had many people over the years who have been millionaires who have honored God. People like J.C. Penney, Sears and Roebuck, the, the founder of Caterpillar Incorporated, who all, all three of those guys said, God, I'm going to give you 90% of what we make and I'm going to live on 10. And they were millionaires because they just honored God and said, I'm just going to keep giving. I'm going to give. I'm going to give. Now, is that going to be something everybody should do? No, I'm not going that far. Okay? We're not saying go give God 90% and he's going to make sure. But if God puts it on your heart to give, give. Give what he puts on your heart. I don't know how I'm getting into giving, but that's okay. Uh, because my wife and I, we give more than the 10% tithe. We're not going to tell everybody what we give, but we give much more than the 10%. There was a time where God challenged me, you know, do I really believe that I can't outgive God? And I had to up, my, up what he wanted me to give percentage-wise because he challenged me. And then he's been very faithful. He's always been faithful. And I'm not sitting here telling everybody what I give, but, you know, I give a good chunk of change to God because he's asked, he's asked me to. Now, what has he asked you to do? That's between you and him. If he says give $20, then give $20. <laughs> If he says give $20,000, give 20, and you have it, give 20,000. Know, but give what he is asking you to do. And Would be honoring. 10% required? As far as I'm concerned, yes. I'm not, we were covering that earlier, that some people don't necessarily agree because they'll say the tithe was never spoken about in the New Testament. Uh, I believe that Jesus raised the standards on all the, all the laws, but you know, uh, he is always saying be cheerful. If you can't give 10% cheerfully, then give whatever you can cheerfully. I personally believe that 10% is the minimum. And anything above that is the offering that gets blessed. That's my personal opinion through the scriptures. Uh, am I going to say that you've got to? That's be Again, it's always between in each individual. But, you know, you've got to start someplace with God. Start someplace. If, you know, and, and a lot of people will say, well, I can't start at 10%. Okay, fine. What are you going to give him? What are you going to make? tell God you're going to give him?
and start someplace. Uh, for me, I've been giving so long, it's been 10% all my life and 10% plus it's all my life, so it's not a big deal to me. But if somebody's just now starting to tithe, 10% is a big thing to take out of, your, out of your check when you're not absolutely confident of his blessing on it. So I personally believe 10% is the bottom, bottom it should be, but that's between each individual. And here Jesus comes to him, and I love it. He says, here am I in, you know, Peter. You've got to love Peter. <laughs> you know, he looks up at Jesus and he says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the water. Okay, you can almost picture the, the, the question on this. Okay, God, I've seen you do some miraculous things, but if it's really you walking on the water, I want to come out there and walk with you. And Jesus says, come. One simple statement, come. Can you imagine how much faith it took for Peter to step out of that boat? Remember, they're in the middle of a storm, waves crashing over the boat, tossing the boat around, and Peter's going to step over the edge of the boat to walk to Jesus. You know, sometimes we make fun of Peter and, and everything, you know, but for all of his failings. And some people will even look at him on this one and because he's going to take his eyes off Jesus. But, you know, just the amount of faith to be able to step out of that boat was pretty amazing. Because I'm pretty sure he thought, oh, I'm going to step out of this boat and I'm going to go sinking down. And it says that he stepped down out of the boat and he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Only two people in scripture that we've ever heard of that's walked on water, Jesus and Peter. Well, number one, I don't think they need to happen, but number two, a lot of people don't have that much faith. Most people don't have enough faith to even pray for people to get healed because in, especially like in America, why pray for somebody to get healed? They can go to the doctor and get quote unquote healed. And you'll hear it all the time. Well, you know, You'll hear Christians say all the time, well, doctors heal also. Well, yes, that's true. But you know, I've seen God do so many healings in my lifetime that have been amazing because we've just dared to ask God to heal. I've seen full-blown asthma attacks that should be at the hospital be healed instantaneously by prayer. I've seen pain and diseases disappear. A couple of years ago, we prayed at, at, at this other church for this man who was on the heart transplant list because he was heart was so bad he was in the top 10 on the list we prayed for him and the next Sunday he come running around the sanctuary and up and down the, the steps and the platforms and says I'm healed he was taken off the list because of his healing God heals even today if we are open enough to ask for the healing if we don't believe it we won't see healing stories of healing all the time. Why? Because usually there aren't any doctors to go to. They have no other option but ask God for healing. And we see God do the miraculous. And part of the problem is we don't look around and see the little things that he's doing in our day-to-day -day blessings. As I said, I truly believe many times in our potlucks that God has increased the food that everybody gets fed. When I look up there and there's not enough food, and then everybody leaves fed. I believe he's done a miracle. I really do. Small, insignificant miracle, but it's a miracle. 
that everybody gets to eat when there's very little food up there. You know, now, we could say, well, it was just a, you know, everybody didn't eat very much because there was so little food, they, they, they took less. Well, how we did it, I really don't care, but you know, I've seen that people go, aren't going home hungry. So I don't think they're taking less than they want. He's either filling their belly a lot faster than they should, or he's increasing the food. And I don't care which way he does it. He's do, he does miracles today. He still does miracles if we're looking for him. If we won't see the small miracles, he won't show us great miracles. Uh, George Mueller with the, with the orphanage, all the different miracles he saw because he trusted God to be his provider. His first church he took over, they had to, the way they did offerings back in those days was you, you bought your seat in the church and it was your seat. You paid for it. The more, the more up front you were, the, the more expensive your seat was. First thing he did was get rid of that way of raising money. And they're going, well, you're going to go broke. You're not going to have any money. He goes, well, I'll just take whatever people give me. God always met his needs. Then he gets into the orphanage. And many times it was like, where's the food coming for these kids? And, God, and they would pray and God would provide. If he hadn't been faithful at the very beginning on a small faith step, he would never have seen the bigger steps. We need to learn to see what God's doing in our life day to day, each day, and see the small miracles that he provides for us. Those days when your gas shouldn't, you know, the weeks when your gas shouldn't last beyond Thursday and it lasts till Saturday so that you can get to work two more times. Now, you know, and the little blessings that you have, and you go, well, wasn't I fortunate? My gas, my gas, well, let's give it where it belongs. Thank you, God. Thank you for this little blessing. Thank you for the great deal I found here, God. I, I, I didn't have enough food and money to buy food for the whole week. And you just brought, you know, there's these deals that I have, and now I've got enough food for the whole week. And we'll just look at it and say, well, look how fortunate I was. Small miracles from God that we need to be able to recognize as him doing it. And we need to be looking at these. Otherwise, we're not going to be blessed. And if you don't mind, I want to try to finish this, this Peter walking on the water, at least. And it says, but when he, Peter, saw the wind that was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. You know, when Jesus, when he was walking, his eyes were on Jesus, he was walking on the water. When he took his eyes off Jesus and saw the problems, he started to sink. Have you been in a place where when your eyes are on God, everything seems to be going fine, you're walking above all the problems, and then you take your eyes off God and you look around at all the problems, and all of a sudden you realize that you shouldn't be, shouldn't be where you're at? <laughs> I've been there. I've been there at times when I kind of, everything is so smooth and my eyes are on God, and then I kind of look around and go, uh, whoa, <laughs> and I start sinking because I look at the problems, sinking into my problems. The more we keep our eyes focused on God, the better off we are. There's been times when I've walked right through the middle of storms and kind of look back at my life and going, wow, what, what did I just, what just happened around me? I was so focused on God that I didn't notice all the problems that, that he was keeping me from. I was hidden in him. I was safe and secure in him. Then I kind of look back and go, wow, a lot happened to me this last week, last month, last year. And my eyes are focused on him. I was walking above all the problems because I knew where to look. The good news for Peter is he knew who to call. <laughs> he started sinking and immediately said, Lord, save me. 
Lord, lift me up. Jesus reached out and picked him up. You know, and he, you know, most people will talk about this. Verse 31, he says, Oh, you of little faith, wherefore did you doubt? He did, he did chastise Peter a little bit. You know, Peter, you were doing so well. And you took your eyes off me. But you know, there were 11 other people in the boat that didn't even have enough faith to step out of the boat in the first place. You know, Peter gets a lot of flack because of this statement, but you know, there were a lot of people who didn't even have enough faith to step out. And many times as Christians, we live in a place where we don't have enough faith to step out to do anything for God. And he's just saying, why not? <laughs> why won't you step out? If we step out, we may fail. We may need him to save us. But at least we've stepped out. It's what we've been talking about in the way of the master evangelism. Are we willing to step out and, and share the gospel with people? Even if we make a mistake, at least we're doing something. We're stretching out or stretching our faith. And it says, as soon as they were coming to the boat, the wind ceased. The storm immediately stopped. Now, and if you think about that, that does not happen in a storm. You don't go from a boisterous, strong storm to nothing. It always just slows down over a period of time. You know, sometimes it's quickly, but it says it ceased. As soon as they stepped in the boat, the whole storm stopped. And it says that they were in the ship, they worshipped him, and said, of a truth, you are the Son of God. Which indicates that there was some doubt in their minds, and there would always be doubt. You're following this guy. He's, he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's doing all these miracles, but who is he really in their mind? And each time that he would do these miracles, they would come up to them and say, yes, you are who you say you are. You are God. You are the mighty one. You are the one that I want to follow. And they keep having this problem with their faith. And I like it that the disciples had problems with their faith because we have problems with our faith, don't we? God, I just don't know that I could trust you in this situation. God, you were faithful here, you were faithful there, you were faithful here, but will you be faithful this time? The good news is, as we look at what he's been faithful in, we get more and more used to it, and he does greater and greater things. When you get used to asking God for the miraculous, and you start watching how he does it, you start asking him, you get bolder. You get bolder and bolder with each successful place that he has done. This is what we see in the biographies of these great Christians. They just get bolder and bolder with their requests. There's one book in there from, from a, a black uh, individual who comes to America to be, go to school so he can learn to be a pastor. He's standing in line waiting to get on a ship. He's, he knows that God's told him to stand in line to get on the ship. He goes, I don't have any money. God says, stand in line. He's standing in line. He's, he's six people away, and he's going, God, there's no, I don't have money. They're going to be wanting money when I get up there. He gets, there's one person between him and going to the line, and the guy turns around and says, I can't wait any longer, hands him the fare for the ship, and walks away. And he all of a sudden has the money for the ship in his hand because he was obedient to God. How many times has God asked you to do something that makes no sense whatsoever? How many times have you not done it? Because it makes no sense whatsoever. God, it just makes no sense to me. I'm not going to do it. I know you want me to do it, but I'm not going to do it. If you just had enough faith to go ahead and do it anyway, what miracles you might have seen. 
Think about maybe the time when you did do it and saw a miracle. And when all of a sudden everything just fell into place as you were obedient. I've had several occasions on that. I've had times when I've disobeyed as well. God, I know this is what you want, but I just can't see it. I'm not doing it. Over the years, I've gotten better at it because I've watched him do some miraculous things in my life. I try very hard now to be obedient when I, when I feel him saying, do something, even if it makes no sense. Talk to somebody when it makes no sense. Do something when it makes no sense. Go ahead and take a step of faith and watch what God does. It's, it's wonderful to watch the miracles that he accomplishes in our life as we just step out in faith. Quit being scientifically minded that God can't do this, he can't do that. You know, realize that we, we serve a mighty God who can do whatever he wants to do. Whatever he tells you to do, he'll get it accomplished if you just let him. Let's go ahead and close. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and that you care for us and how much that you want to, us to serve you and how much you really do want to bless us. Lord, just help us to understand that you are not a stingy God, that you're not looking to be as frugal and, 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 and stingy as possible, but you're looking to bless us in great and mighty ways. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.